I'll be reading Hebrews chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to His will. Blessed is the reading of God's holy, infallible, inerrant word to our minds and to our souls and to our wills. Holy Father, help me teach. Protect me in it that I not misrepresent this text or any other text but unfold what's there. And as Bob prayed, cause our hearts to love the truth, to love the facts, to love the person of your Son evermore. In His precious name, amen. Amen. Okay, if you remember last week, we, we, we mainly concentrated on the first two and a half verses of this paragraph, which is all about the greatness of the gospel, the greatness of salvation. Therefore, pay very, very close attention to it. This morning, the point of verses three and four is that our salvation is not only great, but it is true. And it's, that's huge. What I mean is this. Neverland is great news to a child. But it's not true. And, and therefore, in reality, it's not actually great. Both the greatness of the gospel... And the truth, the truthfulness of the gospel are a necessary part of what the gospel is. Think about it. This is what I mean. There are many, many things in this world right now that may be true. Actually, there's billions of them. A blue car just took a ride on Inglewood Boulevard. True. I don't care. It's, it's not great. It's not relevant to me. And then there are things that are great, but they're not true. So I'm going to neglect them. In other words, I don't ponder the truthfulness of Neverland. I know it's not true. The emails that we all get, you won the lottery, but you, 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 you have to punch this to make sure you collect your money. You don't do it. Because even though that would be great news, you know 
it's not true. You know, so many of you know, I've said this many times, I do have right on my desk hanging on the bookshelf right in front of me, in my study, a piece of paper with three short little sayings on it that get you through a whole lot of life. Get you through what you think, what you're studying, what you're reading, a husband and wife relationship. Three things. Number one, what is someone saying? Are you understanding what they are saying? Number two, once you get that, this question, is it true? And then number three, what of it? Should I care? A lot of times people can go on talking and what they're saying may be true. I know what you're saying. I know what's true, but I just don't care. You're boring me. Let me go do what I want to do. So I don't want to spend my time even examining whether it's true. Once I know what you said, do I care? Let me flesh those three out for a moment with our text. What is someone saying? What is this gospel saying? It's saying that the creator of the universe, the second person, was incarnate, became human in order to suffer and die as a substitutionary sacrifice. And that on the third day, he rose from the dead. And every sinner, every person who would believe in him will receive an everlasting, ongoing, eternal forgiveness of their sins. And that same Jesus will come back again and raise them from the dead. Okay, okay. That's what it's saying. But is it just Neverland? See, that second question, is it true? But you know what? You've got to jump to the third first and say, wait a minute. Let's go to the third first. What of it? What of it was last week? If that is true, that's the greatest possible news ever. And now you go back to question two. Therefore, it's worth it to examine it. Is it true? In other words, because if it's not true, that message, then I'm going to neglect it. Why would I bother with it? Just like over the years as a pastor, trust me, this happens a lot. I don't know how they find out you're a pastor on your emails, but they do. And I get these emails from some woman in Africa. She's a widow now, and her husband had millions and millions of dollars, and they want to know how they can get Sovereign Grace Fellowship a lot of money. They want to give it away. Great news. Not really. That's why I delete it. I neglect it. It's not true. It's a scam. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 3 and 4 is saying, to the readers, and it's saying to us that there has been more than sufficient witness of the truth of the gospel for people to therefore change their whole lives by being convinced by that testimony of eyewitnesses so that 
as the text says, they won't neglect it. They will put their whole life in it. So let's, let's go to the text and see how the author does this. Begin in the middle of verse 3. It, it's the gospel, this great salvation was declared at first by the Lord. Now, now, by the Lord is referring to Jesus, to Jesus' earthly ministry as He taught, as He healed, as He preached the kingdom of God, as He suffered and died and rose again, just as He Himself, in the presence of many, foretold that He would do. So it was declared at first by Jesus, and then verse 3 goes on to say, and it was attested to us by those who heard. So first the author puts himself in the same category as the readers. Together, he was one of those second-handers hearing the eyewitnesses testify to the gospel. And then he mentions that other group. By those who heard. Heard what? Heard what was spoken by the Lord Jesus. In other words, he's referring to the eyewitnesses. And mainly he's referring to the apostles. Those who lived with Jesus, traveled with Jesus, heard Jesus teach. They heard Him on a boat talk to a storm and say, be quiet. They heard Him say, Lazarus, come out. They heard the Sermon on the Mount. They heard Him speak to Demons in people, and they obeyed Him. Three of them were on the Mount of Transfiguration with Him. They heard Him predict His own death and His resurrection. These apostles encountered Jesus after His death. In His body, His transformed, resurrected body, and sat and ate and drank with Him and were being taught by Him over a five-week period of time. And in Jesus' resurrected body, they heard Him tell them, now you're commissioned to go and testify and preach to all the nations. These were the ones who had come to preach to these readers that the writer's writing to, and to the writer. They are the eyewitnesses of the historical account of Jesus. And therefore, the, the sureness, that second one, is it, is it true? The sureness of the content of their faith, and thus now, of our faith, it rests on those witnesses. They're the foundation. Now, just for a moment, to flesh out what this writer has just said, I'm, I'm going to go to the book of Acts, and I'm going to read a number of texts. Just focus. Feel it, because you, you know them, and 
it's good to rehearse them. Because this is what he's saying. Starting in chapter 2, the very first sermon by Peter, he says, beginning in verse 22, in the middle of the sermon, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through Him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of sinful men. God raised Him up. Loosing the pangs of death. Another sermon in chapter 2 of Peter's. David foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ. That he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up. And of that we all are Witnesses. In Acts 3, Peter preaches, The God of our fathers glorified His servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when He had decided to release Him. But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. To this, we are witnesses. Repent, therefore, and turn back that your sins may be blotted out. In chapter 10, Peter preaches in Cornelius' house, you yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil because God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. But, but God raised him on the third day and made him to appear. Not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses who ate and drank with him. After he rose from the dead. Paul preaches in the synagogue in Acts 13. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize Jesus nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, they fulfilled them by condemning him. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days, Jesus appeared 
to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. Okay, feel it? That's what the author means in our text when he says, it was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested or confirmed to us by those who heard. And then, verse 4 of our text, God Himself now is the testifier, the witness. As they preached this gospel of first-hand eyewitness accounts, as they did that, they attested to us while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to His will. So the progression is, Jesus preached the kingdom and He did His work. He acted and suffered and died. And the apostles, as eyewitnesses, took it and mediated that now to these readers. And God bore witness to the apostles' preaching by signs and wonders and various gifts distributed. God bearing witness to the truth of the apostles' preaching of the death and the entombed Jesus and His resurrection. Just a, again, a taste of the early church that Luke gives us. In chapter 2, remember, Ananias and Sapphira drop dead. And then the text says, And fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. In chapter 4, we read, And signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. Chapter 5, Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles. Chapter 6, And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. In chapter 9, Peter put them all outside and knelt down and prayed. And turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes. And when she saw Peter, she sat up. In chapter 13, And now, behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see for a time, Paul said to the magician. And immediately, Mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. And finally, in chapter 14 of Acts, And so they, Paul and Barnabas, remained for a long time, speaking boldly for the Lord, who bore witness to the word of His grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands.
So when the apostles came to preach and to witness to what they had seen and heard, God enabled them to do miracles. And he poured out the Spirit, and the Spirit within people distributed various Holy Spirit gifts as a further confirmation of their message. And so, those who heard him are a group of witnesses. And all of those witnesses give to us a firm, solid foundation of our faith in God's great salvation. That's the text. Now, having said that, what are we to make of the entirety of verses 1 to 4 of Hebrews 2? The whole process. D don't neglect it. You must pay much closer attention. Y you were convinced by their testimony. You changed your life because of it. In other words, how do these historical, first-hand eyewitness testimonies produce in a sinner a conviction that that's the truth of the gospel? So, so that that person will be one of those in this text who pays very close attention and does not neglect it. That's a big question. Because of what we all know about us as human beings and the human race. I mean, for instance, many of us watched hours of an end of testimony. From one degree or another, first-hand, forensic testimony, etc., during the O.J. Simpson trial. And rational people were convinced of the truth. O.J. Simpson murdered these two people. Simple, but not so, because there were 12 other people who, getting together, decided together, not enough evidence. Not guilty. There is much more, not just there, in all of life, in all of us as human beings, much more going on than the mere, I'm a robot, is this true, is that not true? So the reality is, as we know, there are many, many, many people over the last 2,000 years who then hear the testimony, they hear the evidence of the gospel that's proclaimed to them, and they are not persuaded. They don't believe that salvation is real or great. And then there are others like you, 
who hear it and you believe it's real and you believe it's great and it, it wonderfully controls your life. That's how convinced you are. So here's the question. What's happening? What's really going on in this whole process? The, the, the evidence is strong of the gospel, which, which everything banks on two weeks from the day, Easter and the resurrection. But many don't believe it. Real simple truth. No matter how much evidence there is for anything in life, including this, doubt is always possible with the human race. If many eyewitnesses say, we saw him, we ate food with him after he rose from the dead, many could say, there's another explanation for it, why they would say such a thing. They were, they were hallucinating. Maybe someone was slipping in funny mushrooms into their meals. Or, like human beings are prone to do, they lied. It was all a big conspiracy. Doubt is always possible. Think about that. Look, there were tens of thousands, or who knows, maybe it's into a million or more, Americans who saw the same two planes fly into the Twin Towers on 9-11. They saw on, recorded on video, Osama bin Laden taking credit for it, and all of Al-Qaeda taking credit for it. And they saw the 19 murderers in their video recordings before they jumped on airplanes saying, we did it, and yet they don't believe it. No, it's not that easy. The United States government, they planted explosives in those buildings because they could not come down any other way, even though testimony after testimony on how that would work and how that heat would cause that to happen with the buildings, they still don't believe. So, in, in cases like that, what do you do? You, I mean, if you know me, I just I, I don't do anything. That's good. You, you want another burrito? Let's eat. I'm done. I don't know what to do for those people. Here's the evidence. And there's always a reason not to believe it. Look, I heard this week a man call up Dennis Prager's radio show. And he votes, I'm pretty positive, the way I vote doesn't believe that the Russians have really invaded Ukraine. Why do they keep showing the same videos? Why, why are there two or three million refugees in Poland from Ukraine at the moment? But it, it doesn't, 
show the evidence, and there are people who won't believe it. Jesus raised Lazarus publicly. And what did the Pharisees immediately do? They plotted all the more seriously on how to kill Jesus. Nothing will persuade some people. As Jesus said, if they don't believe Moses and the prophets, neither will they believe if someone rises from the dead and speaks to them. Okay, that's always possible. The testimony is strong. That's the reality. But then there are others who hear the same solid evidence and are convinced by it. Why? What's happening? First, what's not happening in faith, in the gospel, in the message. It's not a leap into the dark. No, it's faith in a legitimate, in other words, a strong conviction about the facts that are presented by those who testify as first-hand witnesses. And they believe, and you believe. And what happens? What happens to cause what another person says, no, I just don't believe it. And now you say, what do you mean you don't believe it? I see it now. It makes all the sense in the world to me that this is the truth. What happens? Our text, it doesn't give the whole answer. It gives that crucial first part of the answer. And that's it. What's happening when a person is being saved by faith in the message is that there's a, there's a conviction that arises in their hearts and in their minds that is in proportion to the, the witnesses that are reliable witnesses. That's what's happening. A great group of witnesses testified. Jesus preached, suffered, died, buried, was raised, and the apostles, they lived with him before that, and they hung out for a month and a half with him after that, and then they preached to these original readers of Hebrews, and while they're preaching, God added the witness of the miracles, distributed gifts to them by the Holy Spirit, in them. In other words, a well-founded faith comes through a number of historically reliable witnesses. And that's why the writer says in our text, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation. It was declared at first by the Lord Jesus, and then it was attested to us by the apostles, by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and 
wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to His will. That's enough. You're accountable. I don't believe that the Twin Towers came down because of merely the airplanes. It's, it's enough, though. Don't believe Russia has invaded Ukraine. I don't know what to do. It's enough. If they would have said, I don't think it's enough, then that's the end of it. What can you do? Now, I don't, I don't know how to work this one. That's how Paul did his missions. I know it's shocking because we would feel, I don't, I don't think I should ever do that. I'm done with you. And he goes preach the next. I don't have any more, he would say. This is the message. This is what we're telling you. So now... What's that other part? I'm going to just touch on it and then we'll close. I'm just going to, this morning, just going to touch on that other crucial part that's all throughout the scripture. So this part, our text is crucial. We're not talking about mere leap into the dark. We're talking about believing facts about history that have happened in time and in space, and that those numerous eyewitnesses are reliable. And then the other part comes from just, just, just two little texts this morning. First, from Matthew 11, verse 27, Jesus said, All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father. And no one knows the Father except the Son and some other people. And anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. That's the answer. Or 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 4 to 6. In their case, the God of this world, Satan, has blinded the minds of the unbelievers. The climate in 1995 of racial tensions blinded the minds of the jury in the O.J. Simpson case. 
In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers in order to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel, of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we preach or testify to is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord. For God, who said in the creation of the world, let light shine out of darkness, He has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the testimony about Jesus Christ. Saying in the face of Jesus Christ. See, the way that those two texts and to those whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. Everyone's blinded. What? That's me. But then I saw because God shined. The way those texts go together with Hebrews chapter 2, 3 to 4 is that two things have to happen in order to move from being an unbeliever outside of Christ to being a Christian to being a, a, a believer with a well-grounded conviction of the resurrection of Jesus. First thing that has to happen is our text. Outside of you, not in you, Objectively, out there, there's a message from first-hand eyewitnesses. They testify, and now it's written, and it's been carried down through the centuries. And there are statements made with that message about your salvation. There, there are propositions that are making something clear. And therefore, what you hear, when you hear it, or when you read it, it that what has to happen is it has to be made clear. It's, it, it's said clearly something that is historical, something that is moral, something that is spiritual and about reality. The reality that those eyewitnesses are testifying to. So that's got to be there. The evidence of 9-11 or the O.J. Simpson trial, or the evidence of the gospel. You've got to hear it. That's why. How are they going to believe in him of whom they not heard? And how are they going to hear unless someone comes and tells them? Okay, so that's got to happen. Secondly, something's got to happen in here, in the mind, in the heart. There has to be within the person a disposition about the way that they think and feel about what is being proposed to them with the evidence. In other words, there needs to be a, a carefulness, a seriousness in the way 
that one listens to the testimony. They can't be passive about it. They have to orient their minds toward, what are you saying? Okay, well, let me ask you this. What do you mean by that? It's got to be there in one way or another. Secondly, not just that. Within one's mind, it cannot be jam-packed full of all kinds of predispositions and suppositions that they are utterly convinced of. That they will never believe. Like, I'm good enough. Of course, to err is human, but sin and really that evil or God and, and a judgment and wrath. No, no, that, that's off the table before we even start. Let me hear your testimony. But that one's off the table. When you have worldviews that are filling your heart and your mind, you'll never believe. Or, I don't like the idea of something from outside of me determining how I ought to live. Like commands from a book. I hold to that one. So let me hear your testimony. Never believe. You can't have those kinds of worldviews that, that are stuffed into your heart and into your mind because that's where the gospel belongs and they both won't fit. See, if there is an objective reality out there about God, about the historical Jesus, about the historical resurrection of Jesus, the good news of salvation to anyone who would believe, then that message is designed to fit in here, in the soul, in the thoughts, in the affections, in the heart. But if that space where it's designed to go is already cluttered, with a love for this world and deceptions about what reality is, then the testimony of reliable eyewitnesses, as clear as it could be, as true as it is, and as beautiful it is, the person will say, it doesn't persuade me. It's not the problem of the testimony, of the evidence that's given. It's all the stuff that's within them, in the place where that great salvation testimony is supposed to fit. And so, thirdly, what needs to happen is a humility. A humility that, that comes to place and says, I might not have all of life figured out. I might have something new to learn. It's possible I might need to be saved 
from a judgment that is to come. If, if that kind of disposition happens in a person in the context and in the face of hearing the historical gospel, then that testimony, that eyewitness accounts go clunk down into their soul, down into their hearts. And thus faith, conviction about this great salvation is alive in them. problem with all of us is that we were all born with a disposition to resist the truth of God. None of us were born a blank slate. We're all born as children of God's wrath. Because we're sinners. Not because we sinned. We sinned because we're sinners. And because we're not a blank slate, no one is purely objective. We will not be persuaded at all necessarily before reason and facts and reliability because Every single human being since Adam is broken with agendas stuffed in here. We are all what Romans 1 says that we are. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness Suppress the truth. And so unless God mercifully changes our hearts in the hearing of the gospel, we won't be convinced and believe and be saved. Hebrews chapter 2. Verses 3 and 4 is saying that the eyewitnesses, they have done their part. The historical, the moral aspects of it, and its rational, and the spiritual reality that they proclaim of God's great salvation it has been relayed. And we have their writings. And it's in a book. And any lack of persuasion or conviction on the part of any of us, any neglect of this great salvation by human beings is owing to our sin. Suppressing the truth. We are the ones who need to be changed. The testimony is more than enough.
we need a new disposition. And that's what the miracle of new birth is. Nicodemus, <laughs> I know you ain't seeing it right, but unless a person's born again, they can't see the testimony the way they're to see it. They, they cannot see the kingdom of God that I've come to preach. They cannot enter it, Nicodemus, unless first they are born again. Or God miraculously changes by the infusion of Himself by the Spirit. to their heart, and new desires arise. See, that's why the Apostle Paul says, this is how it works in his missions, in his preaching. In 1 Corinthians 1, beginning with verse 22, we go about and we preach. What do we do? We relay the message of Jesus, fulfillment of the Scripture. Those who lived with Him and walked with Him and the things He said and His death and burial that they saw and His resurrection from the dead, those texts that I just read to you a number of minutes ago, that's what we do. And all kinds of people say, O.J. Simpson's not guilty. That's what they do. Here's how he put it. For Jews, they demand signs. Greeks seek wisdom. And Paul says, sorry, we're not your man. It's not what we're about. We have a message. We're testifying to something. That's what we're about. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ guillotined to death, crucified. And it's a stumbling block to the Jews. Fall flat on their face in unbelief. And it's foolishness to the rest of the world, all the non-Jews, the Gentiles. And no one believes. This point. Except for the next verse. But. A lot like Ephesians 2, isn't it? But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, He, out of the blue, as Jesus said, the wind blows, Nicodemus. You don't know where it came from. All of a sudden, you were raised up with Christ. Or this text. It's a stumbling block to Jews. It's foolishness to Gentiles, but to those who are called. God calls. 
But to those who are called, all of them, both Jews and Greeks, Christ to them is the power of God and the wisdom of God. What a gospel. What mercy to undeserving sinners if we find ourselves believing. That's why we're preparing our hearts right now to eat the bread and drink the cup. Because it is the blood shed for this new covenant, which was promised through Jeremiah the prophet. It won't be like the old covenant when you're left dead in your sin. The new covenant, by definition, is that I will give you a new heart and a new mind I'll put in you, and I will cause you to obey my commands. We come into seeing and being justifiably with good, solid evidence and grounds, by the witnesses, we come to that by that miracle. And we taste and we see what our writer says. What a great salvation. And so, sovereign grace, let us go on continually paying close attention to the testimonies, to this message of the gospel. Praying, God, constantly today again. Oh, my heart, is, it's getting hard. Soften it. Oh, Lord, clear out my mind from all the clutter of the world so that I can see and enjoy and pay much closer attention to what we've heard. Because this message was declared at first by the Lord Jesus. And then it was testified to and confirmed by those who heard. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we thank you for the gift of your Son. And oh, our Lord Jesus, we thank you that you came and humbled yourself. And you thought it not wrong to come and become one of us and to suffer and to die for us. Oh, it is our joy to eat your flesh and drink your blood, to take all of who you are into ourselves through the message of your servants, the apostles, to the glory of your holy name. Amen.